You got a vacation coming up in the next little while? Any of you? Raise your hand if maybe you may be going away somewhere, spring break, or you got a summer vacation planned out there, or who knows, you may just quit it all and head to the Bahamas anytime. Um, years ago, when Amy and I were living uh, in San Diego, and just early in our married days, um, we decided to go on a long vacation. And uh, the only issue for us was taking care of the home care arrangements. Uh, back in the days before we had kids, we had this cat named Jessica. She was kind of a scrawny cat. But you know, when you don't have kids, you love your pets like they're your kids. And they don't talk back at you, and it's easy to love them sometimes, even easier sometimes than to love your, 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 own, your own kids. Um, and we eventually came to very much love our own kids, because I'm being taped here. I will say that. We love our kids more than we love the cat. But we loved that cat. We were worried about, you know, need to take care of the cat. My Amy had also put in a lot of time on uh, fixing up our house and on planting and developing this rather large garden. And uh, she was very proud of that. Um, and uh, we wanted somebody to make sure they took care of it because in the Southern California summer sun plants, you know, they just fade fast if you don't have regular watering. So you can imagine our incredible relief when uh, a friend of ours in the church said that uh, she knew somebody who was actually looking for a place to stay right in this particular period of time. She'd be happy to house sit for us. And we were just thrilled. So we invited her over and we sat down, we made some special refreshments and we, we talked with her about her house and showed her all around and all the things that you know, she could do and explained about taking care of the cat and watering the garden every day. And, and all the other things that she would need to do. And as she left, we just looked at each other and just kind of almost high-fived it and said, this is so great. This is, this is going to work out perfect for us, and it's going to be so helpful for her because she really needs a place, and she's going to have this wonderful place uh, to stay in. And, and we went off on our vacation. Well, a, a, a couple of weeks later, we came back, bringing with us not only the check that we were going to give her for her services, but we had picked out a perfect gift for her. She was kind of an artsy person. We'd picked out an artsy gift from our travels, and we were excited about seeing her and swapping stories. And so we came into the house at the time that we had explained we were going to be back, and we were surprised because she wasn't there. A and furthermore, when we looked around the house, it was very obvious there had been some serious partying going on here. Okay, things were broken and, uh, and really out of sorts. Later discovered that the cops had been called and had made a personal visit to our home. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and as we uh, looked around the house even further, our, our hearts just began to sink. Because almost all of the plants in the garden were dead. Had clearly not been watered, maybe more than once, twice during that time. And worst of all, the cat was dead. But the mail was beautifully stacked. And the newspapers were right where we had told her to leave them. And every single one of them had been faithfully collected. And the dishes had been put away in the dishwasher. And I thought to myself, 
don't get it. Did she not? Did she think that by doing this stuff, but by not doing that stuff, that she was being faithful? That she was faithfully discharging her calling? And I wished I'd had one of those nanny cams, you know, those surveillance systems that I could have gotten to. Because if I could just have seen what was happening unfolding, I'd have called in. I mean, I would have stopped this from happening. I would have, you know, just given her a good shake and say, hey, hey, you don't, you don't want to be doing this. And I could have stopped the damage from happening before it was done. Shortly before he went away, on what was to be a considerable break, Jesus left careful instructions with those he was leaving in charge of the household. And, and those particular instructions were issued to his very closest followers in what has come to be called the Great Commission. Raise your hand if you've heard of the Great Commission. Okay. Here's what the Great Commission says. Go invite everybody you can into the family. Bring as many people into the circle of blessing as you can in your life. Secondly, immerse them. The word is baptize. Baptize them, immerse them in the life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This blessed life of his love and his vision and his care. Just wash them in it. Let them swim in it. Show them what it's like to live in the middle of that pool. And thirdly, be sure to teach new disciples to obey everything I have commanded you. And I, and I think he said the word everything with a little emphasis. Everything. All of the instructions. Because all of these instructions, they fit together. They're, they're, they're a whole life. They describe um, a, me, a way of living that blesses the creation and God's creatures because he loves every one of them. Teach them to obey everything that I am instructing you. And then Jesus adds one more statement. He says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And I think it's an encouragement, first of all. Jesus is saying you're not alone, okay? In your darkest, most difficult moment, forget this. Don't forget this. You're not alone. I am with you. I'm, my heart is beating for you. I've got your back. I'm going to walk through this with you. I am with you always, all the way to the end of the age. I think it's an encouragement. I also think it's a warning. I think it's a sober warning as well. He's saying, in effect, as remote from you as you may think I am, I, I actually see what's going on here. In effect, the camera is on. It's always on. 
And when I return, Jesus is saying, at the end of the age, when I return, we, we'll talk about what happened. And, and we'll reflect on how you followed my instructions. And my prayer is that if you handle these instructions, this household faithfully, I'm going to entrust you with the joy of even greater responsibility. This life, this world, is just to train you in learning how to take responsibility for the creation and for other creatures. And I, I've got even greater joy waiting for you if you learn this here. Now, I hope that I and you understand this message of the Great Commission. Uh, because it is so central to Jesus that he actually gave this same message in many forms many, many times over the course of his teaching ministry. He viewed it as so central to the vision of life he was going to give that he used multiple metaphorical images just to make sure we got it, just to make sure the people especially that were first with him got it. He used a horticultural image. He spoke of a landlord that entrusts the cultivation of his vineyard to some tenants. You remember the story he told about that? It was a great wine press there, and it was a terrific vineyard. He let him have the whole place and said, I'll be back one day. You know, just take care of it. He, he used a financial metaphor at another time. He speaks of a master who entrusts the stewardship of his, of his holdings to a, a bunch of servants to whom he gives talents. He gives them the re financial resources and says, invest it. You know, trusting they've, they've paid attention to him. They've been living with him and serving him a long time. They know the kinds of things he wants to see prosper. He's, he's expecting a return on that investment that he's entrusted for. And then Jesus gives us an animal husbandry illustration or metaphor. And he speaks of a rancher who entrusts the care of his sheep to some shepherds. To protect them against the wolves and the bad hirelings. And the other kinds of people that could do them harm. And in every single one of these metaphors, these different parables Jesus tells, and I'm just giving you a few of them, there are more. In every single one of them, the Lord in the story, the, the authority figure in the story, comes back at the end to find out what had happened. And to mete out laughter or tears according to what had transpired. Now, you get this, right? This basic storyline? I mean, it, it's so simple, really. Y you could explain it to your kids, your grandkids, your neighbor's kids. Right? It's a really, really simple storyline. I'm going to go over it one more time. God allows us into this wonderful place. And he gives us the run of it. You know, he gives us this house-sitting experience. He gives us clear instructions, secondly, on how we're to behave towards his creatures and toward his creation. Thirdly, we get huge benefits from living here. And so it's only appropriate that we should honor his directions as fully as we know how, right? And wouldn't that make sense? And if gratitude isn't enough to motivate us, 
And, and really, that's what I think God hopes will be enough. Just the gratitude for all the grace. If that is not enough to motivate us, then the knowledge of our ultimate accountability for what we do should motivate us. Right? Are you there? Okay, you get it. This makes sense to you too. I'm not, I, sometimes I worry that I'm the only one who sees it this way. That's what makes it so hard to understand about the garden and the cat. Okay, I'm, forgive me for going back to my issues, but <laughs> gosh. I mean, if the house sitter had left the lights on, if she kept, you know, the TV, she'd order extra movies. I don't think they had movies on Netflix in those days. But if she'd, if she'd been irresponsible that way, or if she had eaten up all the ice cream in the freezer. You know, I would have thought her maybe a little bit irresponsible or a little bit selfish, but I'd have moved on. Right? I mean, I would, you gotta live, we're always going to live with imperfect people. I'm I'm imperfect. But no amount of neatly stacked mail, no number of faithfully collected newspapers, no catalog of stowed away dishes makes up for what happened to the garden and especially to the cat. Why? Why is that an issue? Because they were helpless living things. They were living, that's issue one. Two, they were helpless. A garden can't water itself in a San Diego summer. A cat cannot open a can of cat food or let itself in at night when the coyotes come prowling. And we'd warned about the coyotes. Helpless living things need someone to do something for them that they can't do for themselves. Now the garden can do a lot for itself. God baked into it all kinds of self-generative or capacity based on just the other resources it has. A cat can do all kinds of things for itself. But in this particular instance, something else was needed by that garden, by that cat, by somebody who knew they'd been called to provide that and did not. And the results were sad. Now, you can't read the Bible seriously and not be struck by how much God's heart beats for helpless living things. It's a big theme of both the Old and the New Testament. God loves everybody, but it is extremely clear in the scriptures that he feels especially compassionate towards those who won't survive or be able to thrive unless someone with greater resources has mercy on them. The Bible also makes it clear that God emphatically, purposely, specifically, repeatedly calls, not the government, not those other folks, but his people. To help. 
that is also very consistent. In Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 19, God commands us, for example, to show love toward the immigrants in our midst, remembering that our own families were once aliens too. He says that to Israel. In Isaiah 58 and verse 7, God says that the form of worship that he seeks is for you to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter and when you see the naked, to clothe him. In James chapter 1 and verse 27, we're told that the religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans, helpless ones, and widows, in that ancient world, helpless people in their distress. In his inaugural address at the synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus could have gotten up and said anything. He could have described, my, my desire is to teach more people to know the Bible. I've come today to help more of you get into fellowship groups. I want you to build more impressive churches. He could have done all those things. He could have said that's what he'd come for. But he said instead that he had been anointed to preach good news to the poor. And people have tried to spiritualize that and say, well, to poor in spirit. Yeah, poor in spirit if they're all, you know, but the poor. And the poor are often poor in spirit. It's not that Jesus didn't care every bit as much for us affluent folks. And I, I'm, I'm definitely closer to the affluent folk than to the least that he's talking about here. I know I am. It's not that he didn't care for us. I mean, I know he had concern for Herod and Pilate and Nicodemus and many of the other well-resourced people that he met. Jesus never dismissed or treated with contempt people of high material capacity just because they had resources. You know, he wasn't throwing rocks at them because of that. On the contrary, we're told that when the rich young ruler came in front of Jesus, and I'm quoting, Jesus looked at him, what does the scripture say? And loved him. He loved this guy. This guy was a very fruitful, very capable man. But Jesus said to him, one thing you, you lack. You're not using your resources enough, in effect, to advance the kingdom. And so he calls him to, to help the helpless. As Richard Stearns, who's the uh, head of World Vision, has aptly pointed out in his very provocative book, The Hole in Our Gospel, and you keep in mind that before he was the head of World Vision, which is the world's largest humanitarian organization, uh, before he did that, he was the head of Lennox China, a luxury goods manufacturer. And before that, he was the head of a company like, I think it was Milton Bradley or Parker Brothers, that made games. He went from games to fine China to spending all of his time caring for the poorest of the poor. And he says in this, in this very troubling book, that for most of the history of, of the church, evangelical Christianity and profound concern for the poor were inseparable. I mean, they just went like salt and pepper, like your left hand and your right hand. The early church was renowned for its active engagement with the needs of the helpless. They gave to anyone as they had need, the scripture says, and the Lord added to the number daily that those were being saved. That's evangelism, right? It's mission and evangelism. 
The great evangelical revivals of the 18th and 19th centuries unleashed amazing movements of mercy and justice. The progressive era, as it's been now, that word has been grabbed by one part of our political spectrum today, uh, grew out of the evangelical revivals of the 17th and 18th uh, centuries. The church growing so explosively all over planet Earth today is full of good news for the poor. In America, however, a lot of us who most get the Great Commission often seem characterized by what Stearns has called the Great Omission. Our social agenda is about what in the evangelical community? Sex? School prayer? Separation of church and state? And it's not like those things are insignificant issues. I understand why they're on the radar for us. Um, but where's the passionate focus on the issues of mercy and justice that the Bible says, and most of Christian history has said, ought to be the central mark of our social witness? I'm scared, frankly, myself. I'm, I'm troubled by the story Jesus tells at the end of Matthew 25. Because he says that a day is coming when he's going to divide people up into two groups. And the sh there's going to be the sheep who follow him and the goats who go away from him. And what's sobering is that what separates the two flocks, I mean, you picked it up when we read the story, is not any of the things we usually use to say who's in and who's out. The separating factor is not doctrine. It's not politics. It's not social class. It's not denomination. The separating factor is the practical action that each displayed toward the helpless ones within their reach. The separating factor is whether we got the idea that God is a God of grace and mercy or, or we didn't. And it turns out that, that it's those most in need of mercy and grace with whom Jesus identifies as a brother. Jesus sees that mom in Africa who labors all day collecting junk and selling it by the side of the street to feed her kids. He knows her name. And he knows that she watched those kids go to bed hungry last night. And he knows that they're going to starve or they're going to be tragically stunted unless a Christian mission provides some help. Their nation's not going to do it. Their government's not able to do it, not willing to do it. Christ sees those thirsty kids down in Ecuador. It's hot there. And, and they can't find a clean stream or a puddle from which to drink. He knows they're going to probably go blind they may well die of waterborne diseases unless a local Christian ministry in Ecuador can afford to dig more wells. There's a boy in the inner city of Chicago who, who has no mentor other than a gang leader who's very interested in mentoring him. He's got no tutor other than the streets, no hope if somebody older and wiser does not befriend him, does not find him and befriend him, doesn't sign up through one of the various ministries, to be that consistent, caring presence. There's a child in the womb of, of a, a young woman 
uh, and that child's going to be aborted soon unless the advertising budget of the crisis pregnancy center grows to the point where they can get the message close to that young woman and, and make her think about maybe another way of responding. There is a, a person who has just come from another culture, a stranger who is now living here in DuPage County. He's just moved in. He's desperate to find welcome. Uh, just hungering for it. There's an elderly wheelchair-bound woman who languishes alone. She's not gotten a single visitor outside of a medical person in the last year. She's in a nursing home near here. And she just wishes somebody would come and she could tell her stories to them. A couple more stories before I go. There's a man in jail, deeply sorrowful for his crime, praying that a prison ministry or somebody from a church will come see him. And Jesus sees him. And he sees her. And he sees them. He sees all of these helpless people. He's with us always. The camera's on. As I thought about all of this this week, it really struck me. After all of these years and all the graces I've received, I'm actually a lot like that house sitter still. I, that convicted me this week. I pat myself on the back for how neatly I stack up my worship services and my Bible studies. I'm proud of how faithfully I take in the good newspaper and can quote off the pages of it. Uh, I, I, I assure myself about how careful I am not to leave out my dirty dishes in a way that would sort of embarrass me or God. Um, but I just don't think often enough about helpless living things. Um, I don't. Um, people who are at a, who are resource less at a level I've never personally lived at, I, I don't think about them very often. And Jesus has shaken me up this week. Um, I, I'm asking myself, what could I do to show more love for the least of these? And maybe, maybe tonight some of you are, are asking yourself the same question. What could you do? Let me wrap up with just two ideas. First, we, we could give more to the mission fund of our local church, whatever church is your local one. We could give more to that mission fund because the missions and the partners that our church supports are in direct contact with the helpless. I brought Kevin up here and I said, Kevin, tell us some stories. He could run a list of stories of people who just, they're not going to make it. They're not going to live or thrive without someone with greater mercy, uh, resources giving mercy. In fact, the portraits that I painted a moment ago of all those different kind of people around the world, I didn't just make those up. I took them right out of the mouths, right out of the environments of our mission partners. And, and if they just had, these partners, the money that we're currently, I'm currently spending on designer coffee, movies, a whole lot of junk that we wouldn't even miss. If they just had those dollars, 
If we simply redirected a few hundred dollars apiece through some slight changes of our behavior over the next year, we could provide a massive injection. I mean, there are thousands of us here at Christ Church. Massive injection of grace and mercy to people who really need it, to people that Jesus knows and loves. Secondly, we could volunteer. We could give strategically through that mission fund. We could volunteer, secondly. Just a couple of hours a month, maybe just a couple of hours every other month, to serve the helpless. We've just hired a local missions director here at Christ Church. She's just come from heading up all of World Vision's Chicago operations. She is smart, experienced, passionate, and she's coming into a pool of, of other leaders here in the church who are very committed to seeing this next season of our church's life be much more impactful on local needs. If you'd like to help, phone or write the missions department. Let Felicia know, let John know that you just want to get on the list to be of help someplace, somewhere. It's okay if you don't know how many hours or when or where. Just say, my heart is open to being a servant to the helpless. I'll go where the need is. Just get me on your list uh, for one of those brothers and sisters of Jesus out there. And over these next months, we're going to craft some specific service on-ramps, and we'll get back to you. Let me just close tonight by quoting a guy named George Buttrick, who was a great uh, English preacher of the last century. God's providence, he writes, is not in baskets lowered from the sky, but through the hands and hearts of those who love him. Would you read that with me out loud? God's providence is not in baskets lowered from the sky, but through the hands and hearts of those who love him. And then Buttrick goes on and says, the lad without food and shoes made the proper answer to the woman who asked him one day, but if God loved you, little boy, wouldn't he send you food and shoes? And the lad replied, God told someone, but she forgot. Jesus gave his disciples clear instructions before leaving the house. He sees what is happening here today. He sent this message today, I believe, to remind us of the wonderful role and privilege he's given us. And to let us know he's going to return. So let's be the stewards and the servants we can be.